0: This is the Guardian.
1: I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from the Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed
0: doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com/acast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Hello friends, it's me again in my kitchen, feeling a little bit frightened. I'm eating the kind of lunch that you have when you can't quite bring yourself to sit down because you're a bit nervous. I'm eating vegetarian chilli, but it's out of the fridge, out of Tupperware. I'm going to heat it up in the microwave and eat it standing up because I'm feeling a bit jittery. The woman coming over is someone I am a massive fan of. Her albums soundtracked my teenage years and little Grace would not be able to believe that she's going to be sitting in my living room. Nena Cherry is a musician who burst onto the scene in the late 80s with her hit song Buffalo Stance, making history with an iconic Top of the Pops performance complete with a seven-month baby bump. And she's been making waves her whole life. I know her upbringing was very untraditional. Her family living pretty nomadically and getting into London's punk scene when she was still a teenager. She's been breaking boundaries since she was little and has been a trailblazer ever since. But what does Nenna Cherry eat when she's in her gym jams on the sofa? We're about to find out. Oh my god. I'm a bit scared. Mm. You thought we'd stop doing the ASMR chewing. We came back with even more. Nana Cherry,
3: welcome to Comfort Eating. Hi. <laughs> I'd love to comfort eat. I, mean, I tell you what, it was just quite funny because when I got sent the kind of speck of what we're doing here, I was completely um, dumbstruck. I was yeah. like, what, like, what do I eat when I, yeah. when I comfort eat? Because I kind of comfort eat all the time, yes. I think. But I did think of something. Well.
1: You brought a snack with you. I did. Go should, on that. Should I pull it out? I, th- I think... It, let's just go straight in there. Okay,
3: because it, actually... Wow, it looks heavy. Because also, I'm kind of starving, and I think if we're actually going <laughs> to, like, have a conversation, it might be good to eat something. It's because a big tray. I think maybe it smells more exciting than what it is, but basically what we have here is two bowls of Campbell's soup. Oh, Okay? Yes. And I don't know what it is about these things. Like, I would never... Try to make a tomato soup. (laughs) What I do is I like to have it with a bit of black pepper because I like to jazz it up a bit in some hot sauce. So so we have some black pepper. Perfect. Perfect. And we have some hot sauce. And then what we have here is slightly unconventional. (laughs) What we have inside here is a sandwich. What's in the sandwich? Okay, it's uh, peanut butter and mayonnaise. Oh, hang on. (laughs) Ha ha! <laughs> this is peanut butter, <laughs> butter, and mayonnaise in a nice bit of white bread. And it sounds like maybe really scary, but I always loved the Campbell soup. But the peanut butter and mayonnaise actually came from Hassel Smith, who is Naima, my eldest daughter's granddad. Okay. Who um, was, uh, he's not alive anymore, but he was a an artist, a great painter. And when I got together with Naima's dad, Bruce, and started visiting his parents, Donna and Hassel Smith, he would come out of his studio. He'd paint religiously every day from like 9 to 12, come in for lunch, and he'd have tomato soup and a peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. So, that's where it so this edition from. came from, from Hassel Smith. So so I've got the and black then, pepper. yeah. Hot sauce. And I like a, you know what I mean? Give it that little, throw in something Ooh. reminiscent of like New Orleans, a bit of hot sauce. It's a kind of weird thing, but mm. but peanut butter as a savory kind of thing is great.
1: You were born in Stockholm. Your parents were percussionist Amadou Jar from Sierra Leone and Swedish artist Moki Carlson. Very early on, your parents separated and your mother married the influential American jazz musician Don Cherry and gave birth to your half-brother Eagle Eye Cherry. What do you remember of your early life?
3: I mean, my if, if we were going to go back into like or into my kind of earliest memories. Mm. My first kind of impressions that I can remember, like I can't remember a full sequence, mm. would be things that happened in New York. Mm. And I was born in 1964 and in 1966, we went to live in New York for kind of a year, more or less. Mm. And I guess it was the, the impressions, you know, it being culturally sound, everything so different to yes. Sweden. So I think just the kind of impact, you know, I remember seeing my first cockroach, you know what I mean? Things yeah. like that. I got lost on the street in New York wow. and, okay. and for a few hours. And I remember like standing in the middle of the street, I guess, Atlantic Avenue, we were living in Brooklyn and some guy going, you know, what are you doing out here, kid in the middle of the street kind of thing. And, yeah. Um. Do you remember home life with Don and I was just going to say...
1: Were they... Because it's like a musician's home. So are they out a lot? Is there parties or...?
3: I would say that when I think about like kind of how my home was, it was always alive. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was always alive. There were always things happening. So I can remember my mother, like when I was very young, working on things and she'd really got into... I guess from being a textile designer to then kind of creating environments. So she was making textile like drawing and making and painting on paper and then just kind of putting it straight up on the wall. So our environment was always changing. So she could be working and I could be like playing with, you know, doing my thing and Don would be practicing or working with other musicians. And my mom always kept doing? everything very low down. So oh, the record player okay. was on the floor and she was always like, you know, she just said to me like I just showed you how to work it. So <laughs> when you were old enough, you could just go and put the needle in the groove. So so there was this kind of I think a sense of when I think of, you know, like being very small of harmony. Mm. And also you know, as we're sitting here with food, I feel like also like the memories of coming up yes. are always including sense of things on the stove or being cooked.
1: What was your favorite thing that you would eat in Sweden?
3: I mean, in the early 70s, my parents were vegetarians. Okay. So my thing was like breaking out, like going, we, 1970, we bought an old, my parents bought an old schoolhouse.
2: Yeah, in okay. a very kind
3: of rural community. Right. So my thing was like getting the hell out of my house and <laughs> brown rice and lentils and oh, bloody tahini, say. vegetarians yeah. and like going Maltrowe. to the to the like the farms either like my school friends or yeah. and you know like the smell of meat just used to like literally get me high. I can think about that. Actually, my first kind of playmate in the area lived. Kind of did, there was dirt roads there, and she lived kind of like ten minute walk down the road. Yeah, and I and her mother, she made two things that were kind of amazing. And and on a lucky day, um, she would invite me down for dinner because quite often in Sweden it was like okay the family ate, and if you were still there you waited in the room yeah for the for them to finish very, very eating proper yes. like I never in my house it's no. like if we're eating everybody eats kind of thing yes. but so when you on a good day you know she would invite me down and there were two things that I loved one was what you call in swedish plättar which are like kind of mini pancakes and she would serve them with blueberry jam like Ooh. possibly homemade and whipped cream and it was just like out of this world and then she did this other thing almost like pancetta you know if you have a bacon on a bit yes. and you cut it in not little b- breakfast slices but you slice it kind of thick so like like so, lardons like, or yeah, like yeah so yeah. what you would make lardons from okay but like but if uh, you cut it into kind of so thick slices and, of that and that, she would yeah. fry them and I've tried to do this <laughs> <laughs> so they were absolutely crispy like, they weren't bendy, soft, like the fat and everything. I don't know if she... How did don't, she get that to be crisp? It must have been the heat and the pan. Yeah, was, I don't know how she did, because I've tried frying it, you know, in yeah. some grease. I've it's tried, still, like, frying and it. always either gets a bit burnt, it doesn't get that thing where the fat is, like, crackling. What will happen is, after this goes out, a load of chefs are going to tell okay. us, and we're going to break, Please. we're going to get
1: the answer to that. Because
3: there was, like, nothing... More divine and it was just kind of like golden. There was nothing overcooked or it was just this kind of beautiful, you know, like when you get the most amazing crackling in the world. It was kind of like that. Yeah, you know, I feel like so many of our memories in life for me are kind of can be related to what I ate or trying to find what I wanted to eat.
1: So... Like you said, your parents bought and converted this old school house and built a community of like minded artists. What was the
3: impact on young Nena of living in that environment uh, i mean i and I think I'd be sitting here if I didn't come from where I come from, and I realize more and more like where I am in my life now, how connected like how everything is yeah, You know, it's like the domino effect, pushing up the dominoes the other way, you know. And yeah. of course, I broke out and I came here and did my own thing. And I think actually my parents have always had my back and were like protective. Mm-hmm. But they were also like really supportive because I yeah. think they could see that, you know, we had these two dimensions like Sweden, where we would go back to and me and my brother could kind of Run free, you know. We, yeah. we could just and New York, which of course is also like really been a huge important part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it was more. Mm, was the yeah, school- it was hard. You know, it was harder. So the schoolhouse was, was schoolhouse full of artists. It's full coming, of people. Like lots musicians of people would and- come there, and I think the whole idea that my parents had that you know, and it wasn't take note. Mm-hmm. It was not a commune. Yeah. You know, it it was a creative place. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people, oh God, it must have been so everyone, was everyone stoned and you know, yeah. what was going on? But no. Yeah, a little bit. That's but really no, important to you, isn't but it? But you hate people thinking that, that was that, a that, commun- that was the sentiment. Yeah. You know, but for me, I mean I always used to be, be could be quite defensive about mm-hmm. it, but I respect it more and more because there was an ethic and there was an incredible kind of, there was a lot of purpose and an incredible amount of commitment to yes what they were doing. It wasn't just like a kind of, yeah, you know, like an experiment. I mean, maybe a little bit, maybe <laughs> experimental yes. is a better word. Yeah. But there was an absolute but commitment and drive to, mm-hmm. you know, finding a place, I guess, where they could live out their ideas in a kind of independent way, also like growing food, having musicians and people and artists and friends come there mm. to work on things, to be together, to spend time. So it was almost like it was a little mini universe mm. inside of a, yes. communi- a community. It sounds incredible. So it was, a, it was a, you know, and for me and my kids, you know, um, and hopefully their kids. You know, we call it the mothership. <laughs> it's like, you know, where we go to remember who we are, and yeah, you know, it's be- it's, you look it's emotional. Deep. Even yeah, it's talking making me. It on, it's I, I making it. me. It is. It is. Yeah, it's making me feel quite emotional. The next stage of your
1: life, I find especially <laughs> fascinating because you're fifteen you move away from home, you come to London, you're very young, but you branch out on your own and you, you get really involved in the post-punk scene mm-hmm. and you begin to live this incredible life that it feels like you were meeting all these incredible kind of characters in, in, in almost rock folklore and just having an amazing time. I mean, how... Okay, first of all, how did it come about
3: How did you end up in London? I mean, friendship and sisterhood, really. I mean, I was, I mean, I discovered and kind of got taken into kind of punk thing, Mm -hmm. coming here a couple of years before. I think I was maybe 14 or something. Mm -hmm. And I think I just needed something to put my hat on and something. I think I'd been going to school, like a, a junior high school in Sweden and, it kind of got harder, I think, for me being there mm-hmm. as I was getting older. Mm-hmm. So I came here with my mother on my way to New York and the friends we were staying with were kind of punky, whatever, into, you know, dye their hair black. And before yes. I left there to get on the flight to New York, I had my friend Lee dyed my hair red. Yes. And it was just like, I think it was just an absolute, like a total release For me, it was just like, okay, here I am. This is who I am. I don't care what you think. Like, you know, it gave me that license. So actually the second time I came back, I came back with my dad. So this is again, like that crazy domino thing. He was, he'd been asked to tour with the Slits. We'd been living in New York and I hadn't been going to school. And Don and Moki were like, I think you should go to come on this tour. And... They knew, you know, they knew the kind of disparity or the kind of, the fight that I was in. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm Swedish, but like, where do I fit in? I'm a black Swede. Mm -hmm. Like, they were happy, I think, when they saw um, that I kind of, that I found something that kind of helped me shed some of the thing of being self-conscious. But the fight. Because I think I was, I've was i always been incredibly proud and I've always been like, don't look at me like that. I've got the right to be here, even though maybe I haven't, didn't say those things out loud, but I stood my ground.
1: So you get to London and you do the tour.
3: And I meet Ari. You meet Ari. Yeah, the singer I mean, of the Slits.
1: Yeah, I mean, wow, and we, that must've been, you were just a little girl. I, mean. I was,
3: yeah, I was like 15 when we met and you know, I was a bit awkward, I think, throughout the tour, you know, because they were all like so self assured and, you know, the slits were amazing yes. and kind of blew me away. And at the, towards the end of the tour, Ari and I just had a conversation at the back of the tour bus or something. And we just kind of found each other yeah. sitting with her legs spread, you know, with a little <laughs> skirt yeah. with stripy socks or something. We're kind of inseparable. But you know, kind of like how little girls are. Like we were kind of totally locked in. But at the same time, it was just such a huge, huge part of me becoming who I am. And and I think a lot of the people that I met here, I've actually stayed friends with for the whole of my, like Tessa, bass player in the Slits. I mean, Ari's gone now, tragically. Bruce, who was drumming with the Slits. I mean, we had a baby together eventually. Gareth, who, who was in the pop group with Bruce, we had a, a band Ring and Panic. So I think that where I came from, the way we, we had the inner sanctum of my family, but we also had a an extended family. And it was very natural to refer to other people, to have aunties, family friends who were family. What did you do all day? You know... Coming into what you'd call the kind of post-punk era Mm. in London, I went deep into, like, sound system and reggae music, actually, through Ari. And then we used to go to this Shabin and Grove like, kind of almost every night. And we would just watch people and we'd, like, all the guys that were in there, like, hustling about doing their thing. We had nicknames for all of them, like Catch-22 and kind of for a time not so focused on having boyfriends we were just doing our thing in
1: 1981 (laughs) a car accident in London hospitalised some of your bandmates in rip, rig and panic so how did you care for them
3: at this time? Um, I, I brought, so Sean had to, Andrea Oliver's brother, Yeah, Sean Oliver, he had to stay there the longest. The other guy, Gareth, got to go home the next day. And so I pretty much every day would make rice with like tuna and sweet corn, like kind of oh. in a Tupperware, season it up a bit. Hadn't quite got my cooking chops at that point, but you know, I wanted to cook. I had a yeah. vibe for it. I asked Sean at some point, like, do you have any siblings? Do yeah, you have a sister? Does she braid hair? Yeah. I think I asked him. And he yeah, was like, yeah. oh, I don't know. But she's coming down to see me. And Andrea turned up there one day. And we just kind of <laughs> looked at each other. I'm sure she was wearing, like, kind of all denim, like a denim jacket and maybe a denim skirt. Andy always looks incredible. Right? All right,
1: Andy Doesn't Oliver. Doesn't she Andy just? Oliver never... Never goes unnoticed in a room isn't it though <laughs> So the first time you
3: set eyes on her we just we just kind of locked in straight yeah. away, and there was just this kind of thing of energy, and uh, within about 10 minutes we were out in the hallway smoking embassies number five, kind of making <sighs> plans
1: you met each other in a really through a traumatic thing there, didn't you it was did that kind of make the bond? stronger because it was this accident yeah
3: do you think i mean probably in a way i think our reaction to each other was i mean it was just like a huge relief because i feel like we'd been waiting for to see each other for 16 17 however old we were i guess i was 16 by then it was just like
1: there you are like oh my god and then you start cooking together yeah you cook well, kind of do you cook comfort foods together then or
3: we just like cooked big vats of things I think like Andy and I just kind of got into this it was almost like we our kitchen was a speakeasy I guess we were cooking chicken and we had this vats of kind of hot toddies on the go that we boiled all the alcohol out of because we were idiots <laughs> and we were just having the best time and like dancing and and so that was the that was the kind of thread to Your face just lights up yeah. when you start to talk
1: about this. <laughs> you were kind of you were kind of a bit sad. And then once we start to talk about Andy Oliver, like and that time you can just see there's no yeah. the joy there.
3: So- yeah, we you know, we've we've laughed and cried so much together and, you know, held each other
1: mm.
3: up and and been like you know family, and you know, and it's to me, it's like it's always been the thing I think that is central to me functioning. And you know, later when I met Cameron, my husband, um, he was kind of of a similar spirit. Yeah, and that was the other experience that I had of that thing of when you meet. Someone that you kind of know in your soul.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready get 20 20 ready get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
2: 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees Promoting for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
0: finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier
1: In 1982 you started your solo career with the song Stop the War and the next year you had your daughter Naima Mm -hmm. with your then husband, the drummer Bruce Smith and then, it's 1988, and you release Buffalo Stance. I love that you smile when I say (laughs) that. You're not... I thought, I hope she doesn't say oh I don't want to talk about Buffalo Stance. How, How quickly did life change? Because... It feels like up to now, you've been part of uh, quite an, you know an, an edgy scene, people that are on the outskirts of life. So it's post-punk and West London and parties and that kind of thing. And then suddenly, top of the pops.
3: Was it different? Did everything change? When we put it out, everything happened quite quickly. But thankfully also quite naturally, because... You know, we, it wasn't that we didn't want to do great things or make do that we had big ideas. Did you want to be a pop star? I don't think I'd really considered it. No. What did you? I, no, I definitely wasn't like sitting in my house thinking I want to be a pop star. I don't know, but this was. But yeah, it was well, like it was it was the first thing that I think that I'd been a part of, and I think things had been slightly going that way. So yeah. after Bring and Panic. We did a kind of condensed version of B- *Ripping and Panic called Float Up CP. Then I did Stop the War. And there was this kind of journey of, I think, finding myself mm. and kind of maybe harnessing the material, you know, and kind of forming it into what became Raw Sushi Sushi. And- but you know, when you say you used to go down to the
1: Shabeen with uh, Ari, And you used to look at the guys and what and give them
3: names. That's Buffalo stance. Exactly. That is (laughs) that's really good. Actually that's exactly what it is. Yeah, you got it. No one's ever pulled that one in. That's very I like Oh my God. No That's it. So I think yeah, like it was an observation of Yes. of, Of you know, but that's people and being a young woman and watching people, watching men, watching men, watching women, you know what I mean? Like, and playing this and doing that. And the kind of, and I think that was what we were all a bit allergic to, was not just a bit, but, you know, was the kind of stereotypical role playing or the rolling out of the characters in the character study as you watched it unfold around you out on a corner or coming from, you know, past school experiences or... In a club or I must have
1: listened to Buffalo Stance five hundred times in my life. More, a thousand (laughs) times in my life, right? And I have never before realised what a strong punk, post punk energy it has Mm. in it. There's a there is like there's a quiet anger in what you're saying throughout that and I think that's what spoke to so Many women at that time, young women like me, and for you to go on top of the pops and be unashamedly, <laughs>
3: <Knocked> unashamedly <up. laughs>
1: pregnant. Not, even, <laughs> it was a massive deal. You were suddenly a massive household name. I mean, you don't look happy when I talk. No, about that. I mean it's more just like. Yeah, do like, you know what I mean? Not a, that's not a fun memory, and it, no, it. it
3: uh, do you know what it is more than it not being a fun memory? Is like. I think I was so busy just kind of doing it, you know, and like when you say, did I want to be a pop star? No, that wasn't necessarily the the drive, but we wanted to put our mark on things with that kind of expression Mm. of like, you can do things differently. We don't, I don't want to do it this way. So let's do it this way, but let's do it with grace and style. Mm. Like, come on.
1: Can I ask you one more question? Yes. About Stanson, you're in, right in front of me. You know, the middle section where you are really having a laugh and talking in like broad cockney. What is
3: he like? Do you know who used <laughs> oh, to say oh, that? Do you know who Fat Tony is? That? Oh, my God. Yeah. So okay. he'd be standing in the club and he'd be, you know, like we do, observing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Observing. And he'd go, "What is he like? What's he like?" (laughs) So that's like just the first thing that came into my head. What is he like? I'll
1: never hear that the same (laughs) again.
3: You and your husband, Cameron
1: McFay, have spent a lot of your time travelling. What are some of your favourite food memories
3: with Mm. with him? We went to stay in Puglia. There were two things that happened on that trip. The first night. We went out to this place, um, small restaurant, sat in the garden, beautiful copper drain pipes. Mm. I mean, yeah, you know, rain, drain. Are they called drain pipes? Yeah, drain drain pipes. pipes. Drain pipes. And I was sitting thinking, God, those drain pipes are gorgeous. And then I had the kind of pasta of the day, which was just um, with a uh, tomato sauce with aubergine. Mm. But the aubergine was cooked to, like, butter consistency. And then they just plopped a thing of burrata on top (gasps) that was just kind of starting to melt. And it was like, uh, it's it's sexually, I was just going to say, totally sexy. (laughs) Sexy And it was just like, I was just, every bite was just making me more and more. Yeah. Mm. Two other things. (laughs) First time I went to Jamaica, which was with Pregnant with Tyson, when Buffalo Stands was in the charts. The first roadside jerk chicken. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, I could smell it. I was like, stop the car. Yes. And just had to stand there, you know, wait for it. Like, salivating. Someone told me that you two love Cats Deli in New York. Love Cats. Cam and I went to live with, Mabel wasn't born there, but with Tyson and Naima in New York for a while. And... We used to come drive into Manhattan. We were living in, um, you know, on the other side of Brooklyn. We'd come in on the Williamsburg Bridge, and you'd literally drive past Katz's. Yeah. And Cameron, who'd been vegetarian since I'd met him, like thirteen years, basically, just said one day, "Do you know what? I'm going to have to go and get a salt beef sandwich. Like, every oh. time I drive past here, I'm I'm craving a salt yeah. beef sandwich." And um, I was like, "Absolutely not! You're going to die if you do that." <laughs> You know what I mean? It's half a cow. <laughs> it's like, you're going to die. and um, you
1: got to ease in gently. Oh, you don't just go straight that, into the No, But that's cats. not
3: Cameron McBey. He stops the car eventually when he couldn't control it anymore. Bought a salt beef sandwich and just ate the whole thing. And, and he what, was fine. What? After 13 years, fine. Went back the next day, the next day, possibly the next day, and the next day. He just basically had one a day. until
1: making up for lost time. Your third solo album, Man, was released in 96, which included the amazing Seven Seconds. You didn't release another solo record for nearly 20 years, favouring making music with other artists that you admired. You were huge at this point in 96. You could have carried on making best-selling solo albums, so
3: what made you take another path? I don't think, I don't know that I'm cut out to be a pop star. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think I started to feel like very restricted and I was like starting to overthink because of that kind of being uh, marginalized in a way. It's not that anyone was saying to me, you have to stay in the lane and do this. But I think I felt quite, um, well. Uh, you know, like it was closing me. And so I think that my path is is another one where I just need to
1: be I suppose more... when you were little you were surrounded by people, you know, from in the schoolhouse that just they did whatever they creative they wanted to do. They were creative people. They weren't stifled to one thing. Whereas I suppose being a pop star would send you down a, a path well, where it, you
3: Yeah. Because yeah. there's so Much that comes with it. And I think, you know, all the way from Buffalo Stance and, you know, all those things, we always tried to come at it. I think we did do it from an experimental Mm -hmm. level, even though it was pop. But there was that, like you would say, like it had a a punkiness to Mm -hmm. it. And, of course, hip-hop was also a huge part of that time. And, I mean, it still is. But just that thing of it being of our voices, of Mm -hmm. Where we come from and you know and then feeling free enough to, to make our own of it but I just think that um, yeah like I, I just I just didn't on purpose step out and think, oh, I didn't retire ever yeah. in my mind. Or yeah. think like, oh, I'm not gonna, it was just like a very long pause. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and then
3: I did other stuff and worked on other things and, and then just kind of came to a place where, and it wasn't ever that I ever lacked enthusiasm for it, but yeah, like it just became a, a rather long pause. In the early
1: 2000s, you moved your family back to the farmhouse in Sweden that you Mm. grew up in, which I just, I personally think is a magical thing to do. I'm really curious as to what home is like right now in the Cherry McVeigh household. So right today, who's cooking? If you went round to your house any given night, who's throwing down the food for everyone?
3: Um, The last cook-up was me and Mabel, actually. We made a pretty smoking lunch on Sunday. Can Mabel cook? Mabel's a good cook. I mean in fact all of my kids including my stepson Mylon they can all chat they can they all roll beautifully and have really good um, instincts.
1: Tell me about the
3: lunch what was on the
1: table? Oh the lunch lunch, it was
3: a very kind of Mabel makes these great new potatoes that she kind of smashes you know you take a Rolling pin and mm. either with a tea towel or whatever, and mush them. And then she grates parmesan, garlic, lemon rind, and parsley, puts them in the oven. So we Whoa. parboil them. Sounds good. So good. Yeah. And the Love lemon, honestly, it. right? And Sends olive oil. It. Of course. And then I made, um, you know, some gorgeous spring lamb chops, and we had asparagus, and we had a salad. And that was it. Like super, super simple. But I guess in my house, um, we cook together, but also I cook quite a lot, I'm not gonna lie. Also, you know what else I would do if I was just kind of on my own at home, yeah? and I was hungry and I was really needed to eat something, I would roast a chicken, just like a little chicken. Yeah. And just kind of rip it up and, like and you know, thinking. I l- like eat the skin. I love the skin, you know? With a bit of like broccoli. And you know what else me and my dad done? And probably my father, Amadou, loved it too, was the last piece over the fence, like a crusty little chicken butt. Love yeah. that. And when people say like, I can't stand chicken with skin, I'm like, what? <laughs> you need to get alive. It's funny
1: that you're talking about things that you would eat on your own. Because I, I was going to say, it feels like you're almost your entire life you've been part of communities, creative communities so jazz legends in your youth and then post-punk in the 80s, trip-hop scene in the 90s it feels like you're just you always have people around you. Do you seek time by yourself? Do you like being by yourself? Do you, do you like those bits where you just shut the door and you go oh thank mm. god they've all gone out
3: <laughs> I mean I do and I think I, I kind of probably appreciate them more and more because I think when you're living in a kind of chaos or organized chaos or yeah. in a kind of life force of energy, it's also quite weird when it goes quiet. So when all of my kids kind of left home and 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 the kind of pace changed a bit for a minute until everyone moved back in for COVID. <laughs> Hello. For, uh, Hello. I mean... Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it it was like, yeah, like it was felt quite alien, but also I think that's the beauty of this time of life, like as a woman, I feel like okay, now it's my time to to just do th- things. Yeah. And seek out my quiet or loudness or whatever it is that day and just kind of be with it. Yeah. And sit with it and enjoy it and honor it. Yeah. Um But, you know, but in the the louder times with the kids and the kids' friends and the friends of the, you know, and people and musicians in the house, I was also quite good at just finding quiet, literally, with things going on around me. And that's how I used to sit and write. I would just go into the, sit in my kitchen and sometimes with the kind of lovely feeling of hearing the noise of things around me or the world carrying on.
1: Nana Cherry Thank you
3: Thank you for having me Thank you for comfort eating with me <laughs> yeah. Oh it's been a joy Actually I'm going to finish my please finish now
1: <laughs> This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont The series producer is Leia Green And the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale music and sound design is by Axel Cucutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode and use the hashtag comfort eating pod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort food.
3: This is The Guardian.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about and Branch and how you can discover this new level of softness with their iconic sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% responded that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They source the rarest 100% organic cotton for an incredible softness to start. Then they skip the toxins and harsh chemicals for a natural feel unlike anything else. And it all comes together with their signature weave. This special design feels buttery. Breathable, and unlocks new levels of softness with every wash. And they stand behind their promise of softness. With their 30-night guarantee, you can wash, style, and sleep in their sheets for an entire month. If during the 30 nights you don't love your sheets or feel them getting softer and softer, you can send them right back, no questions asked. So head to BollandBranch.com for 15% off your first order with code RESTFUL15. That's boll branch.com. Exclusions apply. See site for details.